0: Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. This season, I'm telling the story of the Rolling Stones. What to say about the Rolling Stones? They were the bad boys of rock and roll. So much of the phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll comes right from the pages of the Rolling Stones' history. They started as a blues band, transitioned to rebellious, innovative 60s pop stars, and then they became the prototypical 1970s rock and roll band touring the world to this day. Their impact on music and culture is immense, and their history is exhilarating, at times tragic, and endlessly fascinating. And I'm going to do my best to tell you all the history of the Rolling Stones. I'd like to dedicate this season to the late, great Charlie Watts, one of the greatest rock and roll drummers in history, who sadly passed away in August of 2021. Don't forget to subscribe to Rock Bands Podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast, and share us on social media with your rock and roll loving friends. All right, let's get to it. Rolling Stones, part one. Bill Wyman once said of the Rolling Stones founder, quote, Brian Jones lived fast and died young. Long before the phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll entered our dictionaries, Brian perfectly mirrored all three categories, unquote. In so many ways, Brian Jones was the prototypical rock star. From his early days as a musical purist playing bottlenecks slide guitar, to his days sitting cross-legged plucking a sitar in front of screaming fans, he always personified the teenage rebellion, musical innovation, psychedelic experimentation of the 1960s. More than anything, though, Brian Jones' story is the story of the rock and roll tragedy. He wasn't just the founder of the most iconic rock and roll band in history, but in the early days, he was both the social and creative leader of the Stones. It was Brian who decided the songs they'd play, and then he teaches his band members how to play them. He called the shots, he talked to nightclub managers, and decided what was and wasn't cool. As the 60s progressed, Brian famously lost his authority over the band, and slowly ceded the creative control and direction over their music to his bandmates, and he ruined his career and ultimately his life as he spiraled into addiction and drug-fueled oblivion. The story of Brian Jones is complex, but one thing is for sure, there would be no Rolling Stones without Brian Jones. Brian was born in February of 1943, in the middle of the Second World War. The Jones family lived a middle-class life in Chetlandham, England. Brian had two sisters. However, sadly, one of them died uh, when Brian was just two years old due to leukemia. This event was undoubtedly traumatizing for Brian and his family, but it was pretty much never talked about in the Jones household. The tragedy was kept under wraps, kind of like a family secret. Brian's parents were sort of odd. They were very religious, conservative, and above all, they valued their privacy, They didn't want to be the center of any sort of attention in town. They didn't smoke, they didn't drink, or do anything that they felt wasn't accepted by the church. They were also very cold emotionally, and they weren't very affectionate towards their children, rarely hugging them, complimenting them, or affirming them in any way. This sort of behavior wasn't totally out of the blue for a middle-class British family during this era, but it certainly is an interesting thing to consider when thinking about the development of the young Brian Jones. Overall, though, Brian Jones' upbringing was fairly normal, traditional. He went to school, church, played with friends, etc. Pretty early on, though, it was clear that Brian Jones was sort of different. At times, he could be both tough and confident, but a lot of the time he was very shy and sensitive. Brian's parents and teachers also noticed that he was very intelligent. He did well in school, and his teachers generally saw a lot of potential in him. Brian's father, being an engineer, was very serious about school. It was very hard on Brian about his grades, because he wanted him to follow the math and science route like he did. Brian also struggled with some health issues, notably asthma. Brian was very asthmatic. Whenever he played sports or did anything active or if the weather wasn't right— he'd experience pretty dramatic asthma attacks, which would leave him debilitated. Uh, Brian's asthma was so bad that his parents went to the doctor to deal with it, and it's actually through this that Brian picked up his first instrument. The doctor recommended that Brian start playing a wind instrument to build up his lung strength, which was allegedly a fairly typical treatment for asthmatic kids in the 1950s. Brian's parents chose the clarinet, and this began Brian Jones's lifelong relationship with music. Music wasn't totally out of the blue for Brian. The Joneses were a musical family. His dad was a piano teacher on the side, and his mother played piano and organ at church. And the family always had a piano in the house, which the young Brian would always tinker around with. Brian's mother noticed at a young age when he started taking an interest in music uh, that he was pretty good, that he took to it naturally. As Brian got older, some more distinct personality features began to appear. While he was once very cautious and studious, by his teenage years, he began to take less and less care about school and started to show off and get in trouble. Brian would get into fights, pull pranks on students and teachers, skip school, and even get suspended a few times. A teacher of Brian's once remarked that Brian was rebelling because of the way he was raised, saying, quote, Brian suffers from a dominating father and has to show off to compensate, unquote people also noticed that Brian could sometimes be pretty mean, even cruel. Brian was the type of guy who was like really nice to you when you were one-on-one, and then the second you were in front of a group of friends, he'd start making fun of you. And once Brian had his sights on someone or something to taunt, he could be pretty relentless when he was bullying people. Brian's attitude, his desire to show off, as well as his inability to play sports because of asthma were probably only pushing him more towards music. Brian became obsessed with jazz and decided to ditch the clarinet for the much cooler guitar. Pretty soon, the guitar was all Brian would think about. He'd stay up all night listening to his family's gramophone, trying to work out chords and riffs. He'd spend his weekends going to different jazz clubs around Cheltenham and frequenting record stores to see if he could find anything that he hadn't come across yet. Pretty soon, Brian was going to clubs with his guitar and sitting in with local musicians, even starting his own bands, beginning his performing career in earnest. Now, because Brian's interest in music and jazz coincided with his rebellious streak and poor performance in school, his parents became convinced that the guitar and jazz were to blame for negatively influencing their son. Brian's father later said, quote, Brian was obsessed with music. He used to play modern jazz records morning, noon, and night. I saw it as a positive evil in his life." Brian also became something of a womanizer in Chetlinham, often seen walking downtown with a new girl. This turned more serious when, in 1959, the 17-year-old Brian got his girlfriend, Val Corbett, pregnant. The girl's parents, as well as Brian's, were furious. Uh, Brian pleaded with Val and her family to get an abortion, but they refused. refused. Then Brian offered to marry Val, but her family refused to grant Brian the permission, since he had a pretty bad reputation around Shetlehem by this point. The baby was born in 1960 and was given up for adoption immediately, not an uncommon way of dealing with unwanted pregnancies in the UK at this time. Val listened to her parents and completely shut Brian out of her life. Strangely, Brian didn't really seem to grasp the gravity of the situation, but his parents were on another level of anger. Word had gotten around town that Brian was getting young girls pregnant, and that Joneses despised that they were the center of any sort of rumors or attention in town. They were furious that Brian wasn't taking his life seriously, focusing only on music, and now he was a father. Brian's parents' disappointment in him was further aggravated by his refusal to go to university. This, to them, was one of the final straws. Brian was becoming more and more rebellious. Shortly after the decision not to go to college, the 17-year-old Brian took his guitar and traveled to Scandinavia, where he would play in the streets, meet girls, and live for a few months as a struggling artist. Pretty quickly, Brian ran out of money and made the trip back to Chetlinham, where his parents reluctantly let him back in, hoping he'd finally change his ways. He clearly never did. Just a few weeks after returning home from Scandinavia, Brian went to see a band in a city nearby. There, he encountered a young married woman, and the two had a one-night stand, which resulted in a pregnancy. The mother of Brian's second child decided to raise it with her husband, never contacting Brian again. But it still shows just how careless and reckless Brian was being at the time. At just 17, Brian Jones was confirmed to have gotten at least two different girls pregnant. There were even unconfirmed rumors that by this point, he'd actually become a father three times. It also wouldn't be the last time, either. Brian met one of his most consistent girlfriends, the 16-year-old Pat Andrews, in January of 1960. Pat Andrews had known about Brian. Again, he had a reputation. He was an unusual-looking blonde guy known for his scandals, his girlfriends, and walking around town with a guitar. The two started dating that winter, and it would become one of the most important relationships in Brian Jones' short life. Brian was both charming and sweet to Pat, but at times extremely possessive, unfaithful, and even abusive to her. Bill Wyman said of Brian and Pat's relationship, quote, he wanted Pat's complete attention and loyalty while insisting on freedom for himself. This was the pattern of his life, unquote. It wasn't long, though, before Brian got Pat pregnant. After trying his usual routine, begging for his young girlfriend to get an abortion, then asking her to marry him, only for his proposal to be denied by Pat's father, Brian accepted that this time he probably couldn't run away from his upcoming child, and decided that he would take at least somewhat better care of Pat, for now. He got a job at the record store, kind of adjacent to his musical ambitions, to support Pat and his kid, And in October of 1961, Pat Andrews gave birth to Brian's third child, Julian. Brian surprised everyone when he sold his record collection to buy Pat flowers to celebrate their son's birth. Brian's kindness was short-lived, though. During this period, Brian became a household name in the Chetlinham music scene. He was often out all night playing, drinking, and cheating while Pat was at home with the baby. Much of Brian's life by this point was precarious. Though still with his parents, he was living a bohemian life. He'd have an odd job here and there, but he always seemed to quit after a few weeks. He spent most of his time playing guitar in coffee bars, staying out all night partying and not coming home until the next morning, if at all. He didn't have any real ambitions other than loosely wanting a career as a musician, In 1960, something happened that would have arguably the biggest impact on Brian's musical vision and his future band's music. Brian went to see Chris Barber, a well-known jazz musician in England at the time. Barber loved all American music, and he felt that blues was incredibly underappreciated, and he started incorporating blues into his act. Barber also brought American blues musicians to perform with him. That night, Brian saw Chris Barber and Sonny Boy Williamson, one of the greatest harmonica players ever, take the stage and wow the audience. By this point, Brian had heard of the blues, but he'd never really seen it performed live, especially not by one of the most iconic bluesmen in history. It was so raw, there was an energy to it. Brian had never experienced anything like that. After the show, Brian pretty much dropped jazz and focused exclusively on the blues. Brian's discovery of the blues coincided with another major event in his life, leaving home. Brian's parents were disappointed in him for dropping out of school, and his lifestyle was simply no longer compatible with their own vision for a proper life. Brian returned home one evening with Pat to find that the house was locked, and no one was home. Brian's parents and his sister went away for Christmas, without Brian, and they left his stuff in the driveway. Brian took his clothes, records, and his guitar, and he left his parents home, never really to return. His life as a rolling stone was just about to begin. While leaving his parents would definitely push Brian to begin a serious musical career, Pat Andrews thinks that it was a pretty traumatic event for him. She later said, quote, All Brian ever wanted was for his parents to say, well done. It was all he wanted, but he never got it, unquote. Brian and some of his musician friends moved in together, and they started playing with some local guys and started his first somewhat real blues band, though Brian now had his sights set on getting out of Chetlinham. One night, Brian went again to see Chris Barber's band, but this time he had a plan. He was going to introduce himself and try out for the band's new blues guitar player, Alexis Corner, who was pretty much leading the very modest blues movement on the jazz scene at the time. After the show, Brian went to the bar across the street to see if he could meet any of the musicians. There, he met Alexis Corner, asked him about the blues, and played him some guitar, Corner took an immediate liking to Brian, saying, quote, he was like a pent-up ball of obsessive energy, talking away in an incredibly intense manner, unquote. Corner gave Brian his phone number and address and told him to stop by if he was ever in London. Brian, who had been looking for a reason to leave Chetlin to try to make it as a blues musician in London, showed up at Corner's place just a week later, and Corner, who had taken a liking to Brian, like I said, let him crash at his place for a while. While staying at Corners, Brian took advantage of his vast collection of blues discs. Corners seemed to have it all. He had jazz, rock and roll, but most importantly, he had blues records and tons of stuff that Brian and most people in England never had heard of or had access to. Brian would stay up well into the night listening to these new sounds and reading the liner notes in the albums, thinking about their lives and the and the experiences of bluesmen in the Mississippi Delta and Chicago. Of all the new sounds Brian heard, though, like T-Bone Walker, Jimmy Reed, John Lee Hooker, B.B. King, nobody shook Brian to the core more than Elmore James, and his intoxicating bottleneck slide guitar. The first song Brian heard was Elmore James' masterpiece, The Sky is Crying, which opens up with a shimmering, gorgeous bottleneck guitar intro. Brian later remembered hearing it for the first time, quote, I discovered Elmore James and the earth seemed to shudder on its axis, Brian was already a pretty advanced guitar player compared to other musicians on the scene. He had a natural ear, and he knew a whole bunch of chords and theory from his years as a piano and clarinet student. And he had under his belt a pretty impressive number of live performances in coffee bars and jazz clubs around Chetlinham. But when he heard Elmore James, Brian decided that it was time for a new medium, and his music would take a very different direction, the electric slide guitar a dying art in America, and something that pretty much nobody in England was playing, he found an old glass tube in a junkyard and played it on his acoustic guitar, which had an electric pickup on it. Brian couldn't yet afford an amplifier, few people could, so he used a converted tape recorder as a makeshift amp and practiced night and day, trying to get it to sound exactly like Elmore James's records as possible. Slide guitar gave Brian an edge that other musicians simply didn't have, and he knew that. Brian's slide guitar skills started to gain him some recognition from local musicians, and blues music was starting to take hold in small pockets of the London jazz scene. To Brian Jones' credit, he had a vision about blues music and its potential that most people in the music scene simply didn't have. He started talking to local musicians about forming a blues band, or as he called it, an R&B band. At the time, this seemed crazy. The blues was old music from the 1940s and 50s that was popular among black people in the American South. There was just no way to make a living as a 19-year-old British blues musician in the trendy London scene. It didn't make any sense, but Brian felt something in the music. There was an energy to it, and he knew that if he latched onto it, other young people would too. Brian really resisted joining other bands. First of all, he could be a bit mean, he wasn't really everyone's cup of tea, but he was also a purist, he had a vision, and he wanted to form his own band and be the leader, not just some guitarist in a jazz group. Brian Jones wasn't the only blues fan, though. Alexis Corner's new band, Blues Incorporated, headlined the Ealing Club in March of 1962. This was a huge moment in rock and roll history, as it was the first time a blues band headlined a show at a jazz club or any club in England, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. Blues Incorporated pretty quickly became an audience favorite, and pretty soon they were the Ealing Club's main headliner playing Saturday nights, and the blues scene started to blossom in London's jazz clubs. Brian would occasionally sit in with Blues Incorporated, and he made a bunch of musical connections with the players who hung around the Ealing Club in those days. That spring, Alexis thought Brian was finally good enough to give him his own slot at the Ealing Club. In April of 1962, Brian, introduced under his stage name, Elmo Lewis, was called up to the stage. The audience was totally captivated as Brian ran his bottleneck slide across the electric guitar strings, playing a near-perfect rendition of Elmore James's Dust My Broom. Most of the crowd had never heard of the slide guitar before. However, there were two young blues fans in the audience that night who couldn't believe what they were seeing—a slide guitar player in real life. Those two guys were Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Mick Jagger, in many ways, invented the rock and roll frontman. Born in July of 1943, Mick's mother was a hairdresser and his father was a physical education teacher. The family wasn't very musical. In fact, they didn't even own a record player. Mick's dad wanted his sons, Mick and Chris, to focus on exercise, stretching, and his favorite sport, basketball. Mick's dad, Joe, pretty quickly advanced past teaching P.E. He actually became a well-known expert in exercise physiology in England, and started lecturing at St. Mary's College. He was even given a seat on the prestigious British Sports Council. Mick though, took a liking to music through the radio. Whenever he had the chance, he was listening to music on BBC Radio or Radio Luxembourg. His parents took notice of his interest when he was young. Jagger's mother, Eva, later remembered Mick dancing to the radio for the first time, saying, He jumped around and swiveled his hips, and it wasn't really like anything else we'd ever seen. We laughed, of course, because here he was, only four or five, and jumping around with this big grin on his face. It was like the music had flipped a switch inside him, unquote. As he got older, Mick even started to sing. Music was just that, though, something Mick liked. His parents didn't mind it, and Mick was such an excellent student and a committed athlete that they didn't care if he listened to Buddy Holly on the radio. Mick's first brush with fame came pretty early. Mick's father had been asked to consult the BBC on a documentary they were making about sports, which would be aired on TV, and they needed a young, fit kid to demonstrate some basic exercises, rock climbing, and canoeing. Joe thought his 15-year-old son and athletic protege, Mick, would be the perfect fit for the role. You can actually see clips of this documentary, Seeing Sport, online. Mick remembered the filming, saying, quote, I was a star already. I was thinking, never mind the bloody canoe. How does my hair look, unquote. It was also through his dad's obsession with fitness that Mick discovered music that would truly change his life, the blues. Mick's dad signed him up to teach the children of soldiers at American bases about fitness. That's where he befriended an African American army cook who showed him Muddy Waters live at Newport. Mick remembers, quote, It was the first time I heard black music. In fact, it was the first encounter with American thought, unquote. Mick heard the blues at a time when he was beginning to become a bit more rebellious. He started smoking cigarettes behind the school at lunch, he grew his hair out, and he wore tight jeans. He also started talking about capitalism and communism and criticizing war and British foreign policy. Very heady, philosophical business. Above all, though, Mick started to rebel by taking music a bit more seriously. Around this time, Mick started singing with his friends, and his friend Dick Taylor, who later went on to form the band The Pretty Things, started a blues band they called Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys, and they'd practice in Mick's bedroom. Mick's mother didn't think it was much more than a phase, and she certainly didn't think Mick had much talent. She remembers listening to Mick singing in the other room saying, quote, "It was hysterical. We tried hard not to laugh, unquote." Mick Jagger's characteristic voice was likely the result of an accident. When he was playing basketball one day, he collided with another player and bit off part of his tongue. He couldn't speak or sing for a week. Dick Taylor later recalled the event and what it meant for the Blue Boys, saying, quote, we all wondered if it was it, if Mick's singing days were over, unquote. When Jagger could finally sing again, he had to use his mouth completely differently to enunciate, and it completely changed his voice. Taylor went on, saying, quote, that accident just changed his voice completely. He sounded so weird, the way he sounds now, actually. Biting off the top of his tongue might have been the best thing that ever happened to Mick Jagger, unquote. Mick continued casually playing with the Blue Boys, rarely doing more than a practice session or playing at a party. At this point, Mick really had no intention of trying to make a serious career out of music. In the spring of 1961, Mick was accepted to study the following year at the prestigious London School of Economics, where he wanted to study to become a successful businessman. In the fall of 1961, though, Mick Jagger made a professional connection more important than any he could have dreamed of making at the London School of Economics. Mick was running late to an economics lecture when he recognized someone on the platform, a skinny kid wearing jeans, a dirty purple shirt, and a denim jacket, with a guitar slung around his back an old classmate of his, Keith Richards. They both noticed each other, and Keith, noticing a stack of records under his arm, went up to Mick and asked him what he was listening to. To his surprise, Mick had under his arm Keith's dream collection, The Best of Muddy Waters, a disc by Little Walter, and above all, the latest release by Keith's idol, Chuck Berry, Rockin' at the Hops. Keith couldn't believe his eyes. Here was some kid he used to see on the playground with rare American music. Mick revealed to him that he had ordered them by mail, by sending money to Chess Records in Chicago. Keith remembers taking an immediate liking to Mick, saying, quote, Did we hit it off? The guy's got Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters under his arm. The real shit. You're gonna hit it off, unquote. After a few minutes of conversation, the two realized they had more in common than just growing up near each other in Dartford. They were both obsessed with music, and they played. Keith played guitar, though he wasn't in a group, and he was just kind of starting off, and Mick sheepishly admitted that he sang with a group, but it was, quote, just for fun, unquote. They also had a mutual friend, Mick's bandmate Dick Taylor. Dick Taylor went to the same art school as Keith Richards. When it was time for Keith to get off the train, he and Mick agreed that they'd meet for a cup of tea, with Keith saying, quote, bring your records, unquote, as he left. While Keith Richards lived just around the corner from Jagger and Dartford and even attended the same primary school, their upbringing was very different. Bert and Doris Richards met in a factory they both worked in, and their son, Keith, was born in December of 1943, like a few other of his bandmates, in the middle of World War II. The neighborhood of the town they lived in in Dartford was pounded by Nazi airstrikes. Keith doesn't remember the war, but he remembers the aftermath and the impact it had on his hometown, quote, my earliest memories are the standard post war memories in London. Landscapes of rubble, half a street's disappeared. Some of it stayed like that for ten years. The main effect of the war was just that phrase, before the war, because you'd hear grown ups talking about it, saying, oh, it was like this before the war. Unquote. Dartford wasn't exactly the happiest or safest area in London these days. Keith would go out exploring the marshes or the ruins with his neighborhood friends. One day, he even came across a dead prostitute in an abandoned factory, and he and his friends just biked away as fast as they could. Socially, Keith was really shy and a mama's boy. He couldn't stand the idea that he had to go to school, often crying on his way. As he got a bit older, he was bullied pretty relentlessly, getting beat up on his walk home from school pretty much every day for a year. Keith said, quote, For over a year, when I was 9 or 10, I was waylaid, Dartford-style, almost every day on my way home from school. I know what it is like to be a coward. I will never go back there. As easy as it is to turn tail, I took the beatings. I told my mom that I had fallen off my bike again, to which she replied, Stay off your bike, son. Keith was very close to his mother and his grandfather, Gus two musical people. Keith remembers at his house and his grandparents, the radio was on or someone was singing or playing the piano. Music was just everywhere. It was at Gus's house that Keith had his first interaction with the guitar. Gus had an old Spanish guitar hanging above the upright piano and Keith would just stare at it. One day, Gus told Keith that when he could reach it, he could play. When Keith was around 10 years old, he finally got to the guitar, and Gus showed him a couple of chords, but most importantly, he showed him how to play a traditional Spanish song, Malaguena, which Keith practiced religiously. Keith Richards, the guitarist, was born. It's a good thing music worked out, because after primary school, Keith went to Dartford Tech instead of grammar school. Where he said, quote, At Dartford Tech, you were not going to be trained for anything more than manual labor. The teachers were terrible and their only function was to keep this mob in line, unquote. At the time though, Keith wasn't really thinking too much about school. He was way more interested in music. Encouraged by his mother, Keith tried out for the Dartford Tech choir. He was accepted and thanks to his prepubescent voice, he was a soprano. He took singing very seriously, even though he was bullied pretty hard for being a choir boy. The choir even got to sing at Westminster Abbey in front of the Queen of England. When Keith was around 13, his voice started to crack and change and he was kicked out of the choir. He remembers this moment as the time he started really rebelling because his teachers at Dartford Tech gave Keith and the other choir boys a break on their math and science classes to go to choir practice every day. Suddenly, he was cut from the choir and then they decided to hold him back a year because of his poor grades in math and science. Keith felt humiliated. He said, quote, That's when I realized that there's bigger bullies than just bullies. There's them, the authorities, and a slow burning fuse was lit. Unquote. Keith, the rebel, was forming. He started wearing tight jeans, skipping haircuts, and getting into trouble at school. At the same time, rock and roll was hitting the airwaves, and Keith was listening to songs like Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis and Long Tall Sally by Little Richard on the radio. At 15, he was finally given his own guitar and he started to dedicate himself to playing, while completely neglecting school. Keith was eventually expelled from Dartford Tech because he and his friends skipped the assembly on the last day. It didn't really matter, a teacher had seen that Keith was a pretty skilled drawer, and gave Keith a good recommendation to go to art school. In the fall of 1959, Keith Richards started his education at Sidcup Art College. This was a major chapter for Keith, and he remembers it fondly. It's where he started to take the guitar seriously, and where he'd join a band. Keith was sort of an on-and-off guitar player. He liked all music, but he really just tinkered around and learned a thing or two by ear. At art school, everyone would hang out and smoke cigarettes in the student cloakroom, and the musicians would strum guitars and sing. That gave Keith a reason to play, and to perform, and to hear sounds that he had never heard before, like the blues. Keith started to really think about the guitar and the music he liked. He idolized Scotty Moore and Chuck Berry, and pretty soon, Keith was on a mission. He wasn't going to be some graphic designer. He decided that he was going to be a guitar player. This is where Keith was when he met Mick Jagger at Dartford train station in 1961. He wasn't in a band, and he wasn't particularly good at guitar yet, but he had a dream, a vision. Once Mick and Keith had met, they pretty much immediately became best friends. They just had a connection, and they spent their days bumming around, going to parties, but above all, record collecting. Key said, quote, Mick and I had totally identical tastes in music. We never needed to question or explain. It was all unsaid. We'd hear something, we'd both look at each other at once. Everything was to do with sound. We'd hear a record and go, that's wrong, or that's faking, or that's real, unquote. Mick invited Keith to join Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys, with Keith on guitar, Derek Taylor on bass, Bob Beckwith on guitar, and Mick Jagger singing. But the band was very rudimentary. I mean, Back then, pretty much nobody had amplifiers, so they were plugging into radios, tape recorders, all just to get the sound a little louder. Mick, Keith, and the rest of the band would spend their Saturday nights at the Ealing Club, listening to Alexis Corner's Blues Incorporated and hanging out with every R&B fan in London, the same club where they saw Brian Jones play in early 1962. Mick Jagger was the first to go up to Brian Jones after the performance, and Brian told him that he was starting his own band, the Brian Jones Blues Band, and that they'd be playing electric blues or R&B. A few weeks later, on May 2nd, 1962, Brian Jones put an official advertisement out in Jazz Journal that he was looking for members. Brian didn't want the inconsistent floaters who jammed with whoever had an opening. He wanted a tight-knit, permanent group of musicians aiming to be professional. This was tough because there was no money to be made at the time and people had jobs and school, though the band had a few potential members. Brian knew a bunch of people in the scene. The first official member was piano player Ian Stewart, known as Stu, a square-jawed older guy who'd go on to be in the Stones organization for decades. Stu was talented, and he got along well with pretty much everyone, but he wasn't driven like Brian was. He just loved to play. Brian had been jamming with a bunch of guys, but nobody really committed, either because they had other commitments or they didn't get along with Brian, who again, he could be a bit mean. Brian knew that he wanted Mick Jagger as a singer. Since they'd met, Brian had seen Mick sing a few times with Blues Incorporated, and he thought he was outstanding. Jagger accepted the invite, and he invited Keith to come jam with the band. Brian didn't really want both Mick and Keith in the band, he didn't think Keith was good enough yet, but Mick told Brian, maybe more out of fear than confidence, quote, I'm not doing it if Keith's not doing it, unquote. Brian let Keith Richards join the band, and out of necessity, Brian also invited Dick Taylor to join the band on bass. So Brian, Mick, Keith, Stu, and Dick, the earliest version of the Rolling Stones, started to play in the spring of 1962, playing blues songs that Brian picked out and taught to the rest of the band. They practiced a lot, usually without a drummer, unless someone could sit in, and from time to time, they landed a gig at a pub, or they played a few sets at the Ealing Club. Nobody was ever really thrilled with the name the Brian Jones Blues Band, and Brian, too, wanted something a little cooler. One night... Between jams, Brian suggested they call themselves the Rolling Stones, after Muddy Waters' classic blues song, Rolling Stone. Mick was pretty dead set against the name, but the others liked it. There was no official name change. Brian just started telling club managers that that's what they were called. And that was that. Brian was still very much in charge of his Rolling Stones. <laughs> The Rolling Stones, who pretty quickly added a G to their name to become the Rolling Stones, were getting pretty good, but they had a few problems in their lineup. Dick Taylor left the band to go back to art school, leaving them without a bass player, and their half-consistent drummer decided that he was done with the Stones, and he left quickly after Dick. As a rhythm and blues band, they couldn't go on without a rhythm section. The drummer who had just left the Stones told them about a bass player he knew in his old band, who was looking for a new group. His name was Bill. Bill Wyman, known now as the Quiet Stone and the official Rolling Stones archivist, wasn't really anything like the bandmates he was about to join. His original name was Bill Perks, and he was born in Penge, near London, in 1936. Unlike Mick, Keith, and Brian, Bill had vivid memories of World War II since he was a few years older than them. Bill grew up in poverty to a particularly cold and repressed family who didn't show him much affection. He was still very curious and intelligent, and early on he took an interest in music, which his grandmother encouraged. Music and university were simply out of the question for Bill, though. He was pulled out of school by his father, who thought it would be a better use of his time to work as a bookkeeper. Besides, Bill was expected to do his national service and get a steady job and raise a family. This was the path he took. He joined the British Armed Forces and spent three years in the army, traveling across Europe. Bill quite liked the army, he made a bunch of friends, and this is where he discovered rock and roll, an interest that he could never quite shake. When he left the army in the late 1950s, he had an obsession with Elvis, but professionally, music simply wasn't on the horizon for Bill. He got a working class job and got married, though he had a reputation for womanizing, which we'll get into later. Still though, Bill couldn't shake the urge to play music. So he bought a guitar, and pretty soon, he was playing all the time. After a while, him and some friends decided to form their own band. When Bill formed his band, the Cliftons, he didn't have a lot of money, but he decided that he wanted to take it seriously. He wasn't just doing it for fun. He wanted to make it, whatever that meant. So he bought a good quality amplifier, which would prove to be a really good decision. Bill started off playing guitar and singing, but one day he saw a band with a bass player, and he just fell in love with the sound of a bass. He said, quote, I was always more attuned to the overall sound, the need for internal dynamics and precision. I'm an orderly person. Bass playing suits my outlook, unquote. Bill's band played a lot of gigs, but like many bands, after a few band members quit, they found themselves unable to go on. This is when Bill heard from a friend that a London band, the Rolling Stones, were looking for a bass player. In December of 1962, Bill, who would only later change his last name to Wyman, showed up at a pub to try out to be the Rolling Stones' new bass player. Mick was polite and welcomed Bill, but Brian and Keith barely even said hello, keeping to themselves and drinking and smoking at the bar. Bill wasn't really impressed with the band either. He thought they were shaggy, rude, and unprofessional. Bill tried to be accommodating, though, buying the drinks and even giving them cigarettes, but they weren't receptive. When they talked about music, they scoffed at Bill's ignorance about Muddy Waters and Little Walter. Brian and Keith's demeanor changed when Bill pulled out his equipment, which was way better than their entire band had in those days. Keith said, quote, In walks Bill with a huge speaker and a spare Vox AC30 amp, which was the biggest amp we'd seen in our lives. He had the bass together already. He'd been playing in rock bands and he knew how to play but he didn't want to play with those shitty rock bands anymore, unquote. Like I said, Bill wasn't yet a big blues fan, so he was still feeling his way through many of the rehearsals. Bill felt a lot more comfortable when the band would play a Chuck Berry number, which was a red flag for Brian. He also didn't really mesh well at first with the other band members. Still though, Bill had all the equipment and the playing experience that the Stones needed to be a serious band, and he was soon invited back for rehearsals. With the Rolling Stones now having a consistent bass player, the only thing they desperately needed was a consistent drummer. Up until this point, the Stones were rehearsing with any drummer who was available, often rehearsing without one. The most frequent drummer to sit in with the Stones was Charlie Watts, who was playing with Alexis Corners Blues, Incorporated. Brian had long had his eyes on Charlie Watts. Charlie was a jazz purist and a fixture of the local jazz scene. He was an art student and had no intention of playing music professionally, so he kept turning Brian down when he would ask to join the Stones. Charlie was born in London in June of 1941 to a middle-class family. He was a gifted drawer and from an early age took an interest in music. His first instrument was the banjo, though it wasn't long before he became a drummer. Quote, I couldn't hit the dots on the frets right. It drove me up the wall. After about four weeks, I took the banjo apart, made a stand for it out of wood, and played the round skin parts with brushes. It was like a drum, anyway, unquote. His parents decided to buy him a real drum kit, and that was that. Charlie, a jazz fan, would listen to records and zone in on the drummer. It didn't take long before he was drumming in coffee bars and pubs, and he was valuable because so few people had drum kits, so he got a lot of work. At 16, he went to art school to study graphic design, and continued drumming on the side. He was playing with Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated, which is where he got the most work. He wasn't the permanent drummer. He still focused on art school and thought of music as a side gig, some fun. Charlie played with everyone, and one of his bands that he used to jam with was Brian Jones' band, The Rolling Stones. The Stones liked Charlie. He was driven, sort of quiet and cold, but he meshed well with the band. After practices, Brian tried and failed to persuade Charlie to leave Alexis Corner's band, but Charlie would refuse time after time. He didn't want to commit to going professional. The big change came, though, when Alexis Corner decided that his band was going professional, to become full-time musicians. This gave Charlie the freedom to play with whoever, and he started jamming more and more with the Stones. Finally, in January of 1963, Brian and Stu convinced Charlie to join the group, full-time, Charlie said, quote, I was into modern jazz, but I had a theory that R&B was going to be a big part of the scene, and I wanted to be in it. The Stones are great, so I joined, unquote. By early 1963, Brian, Stu, Mick, Keith, Bill, and Charlie, the Rolling Stones, had formed. With a consistent lineup, the Stones had nowhere to go but up. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Rock Bands Podcast. Next episode, we're talking about The Stones' early gigs, their first album, and so much more. Don't forget to subscribe to Rock Bands on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, at rockbandspodcast, and share us on social media with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, see you next time.